Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, July 21st, 2022, and I am so glad that you are here with us tonight, that I have the opportunity to be with you and to study with you. It is the highlight of my week, and I'm grateful to every one of you for being here. There's a famous verse in Koheles, Ecclesiastes, written by Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. Tov leleches el beis evel, mileches el beis mishta. It is better to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to a house of celebration. Ba'asher hu sov kol ha'adam, because a house of mourning is, after all, the end that awaits every person. And at a house of mourning, we can learn something. We can derive some lesson, some inspiration that will make our life more meaningful. Concentrating on loss, on death, on mourning, yes, of course, it's very sad. At the same time, it has the potential to be very life-affirming, to ensure for us and to enhance for us what is important in life, what our priorities should be. There is a hesitation to learn about the laws of mourning, and it's understandable. People don't like to dwell on death. People don't like to talk about death. The problem is that the more we avoid it, the more we are unprepared when it does come, which it inevitably will. When I was studying to become a rabbi many years ago, I did not learn a single thing about this topic. And I remember very clearly my first rabbinical position was New Orleans, Louisiana. I was very young. There was a whole lot I did not know. And I got there. I was there for, I don't know, maybe a few weeks. And a woman in my congregation, a very wonderful person, we're still friendly with this person, Nebel, her father passed away. So the first thing I knew is somebody has a relative that passed away. So the first thing you do is you go there. So I went to her house, but I I figured that I was going to be called upon and asked some questions like, what do we do? And I had no idea. So I went to my bookcase and I took every book off the shelf, every safer that I had that was about death and dying in Judaism. I put it into a bag and I ran over to the house. I came in. Although I had no experience doing this, I was trying to console this woman. And they started asking me questions about the funeral, about sitting shiva, about mourning. And I had no idea. So what I did was I deposited my collection of books in an upstairs room. And they would ask me a few questions. I would say, excuse me for a few minutes. Let me go check and I'll come back. And I went up and down and trying to look up the sources and come to the answers and it wasn't really working well. And finally, I gave up on that approach and I called one of my teachers 
at that time who lived in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I said, Rebbe, I'm in big trouble. All these questions are coming. I have no idea. And he was very calm and he was very patient. And he said, we'll go through it together. Just ask one by one. I'm going to help you with it. That was the beginning of my career when it comes to an area which is extremely necessary for rabbis to know. And that's for a rabbi. I didn't know anything. And even if we do know some of the details, we do know some of the actions involved when someone we love passes away, God forbid, we may not connect to the interior dimension, to the inside aspect of mourning and grieving. What is its essence? Because after all, the subject of mourning and grieving has specific actions associated with it, but the essential part is what is internal, what is the mood, what am I feeling, the chovas halev, the obligations of my heart as I go through this. And the only way is to study it. But people are reluctant, and there's so many other subjects to study. I think this is a good time because, after all, all of us right now are mourners. This period of the Jewish calendar leading up to Tisha B'Av, we are in a period of mourning, national mourning. We are practicing these practices gradually leading up to Tisha B'Av itself. So I'd like to use this opportunity to be able to understand in a bit more detail and in a bit more depth this part of Torah, because it is Torah, so that we can help others who are going through it, so that we ourselves can use it when we need it, because again, it is inevitable that this will be relevant in our lives, and also so that we can appreciate the genius and the sensitivity of the mitzvos of the Torah given by God and the guidance and the practices legislated by our rabbis. If someone were to ask, why should I observe Jewish mitzvos? Why should I keep them? Well, there are many different answers, but one of them is they incorporate such genius, such sensitivity. They connect to the experience in such a deep way. And this is an area where it is particularly obvious. So I'd like to discuss a number of different subjects with you tonight. And as we go through this, I'm going to ask you to please feel comfortable to put any questions you have in the chat. And I will try to respond to the questions in the chat that come up as a result of the subjects we're going to study. Let's begin at the beginning with the mitzvah of Bikr Cholim, visiting someone who is sick. The Torah tells us that Avraham 
in Bereshis, Avraham had bris mila, ritual circumcision. And the next Torah portion, the parsha is Vayera. Vayera elav Hashem be'lonei Mamre. God appeared to Avraham in the plains of Mamre. V'hu yoshe pesach ha'oel kachom hayom. Avraham was sitting in the doorway to his tent in the heat of the day. Says Rashi, what was the purpose of God appearing to Avram at this particular juncture? Levaker Esachola. God came to visit Avram because he was sick. He was in pain. He had just had this operation that he did to himself. And so God came to fulfill the mitzvah of Bikrocholim. How does Rashi know that that's why God visited? The subject of Bikrachol and visiting the sick is not mentioned anywhere in this passage. It just says God appeared. God appeared. God could have appeared for innumerable reasons. How does Rashi know that the reason God appeared is to fulfill the mitzvah of Bikrachol, to visit someone who is sick? So the Maharal, Writing in his commentary, Gur Aryeh gives the following answer, and it is a classic answer, and we need to remind ourselves of this answer over and over and over. The Torah says that God appeared to Avraham, and yet does not follow that with any words that God said. Normally, you would expect God appears to Moshe, and he tells Moshe so-and-so. God appears to the Jewish people, and he says to them so-and-so. Here, God appears to Avram, but there is no follow-up with what God said. Listen carefully to the words of the Maral. No words are mentioned, only the fact that God appeared. And due to the fact that no words are spoken by God, necessarily, with a certainty, the reason God came was to fulfill the mitzvah to visit the sick. Because when you visit someone who is sick, it's not necessary to speak. It's not necessary to talk. It is simply necessary to be present. Many people are uncomfortable visiting someone who is sick and they may say to themselves, I don't know what to say. What will I talk about? Here's the, here's the secret. It doesn't matter what you say. You don't have to say anything. The significance of visiting someone who is sick is your presence. Simply the fact that you were there. Simply the fact that you were showing through your presence that you care about this person. When we visit someone who is sick, it could be in the hospital, it could be at home, we have to be very sensitive because we have to always remember that we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for the person who is sick. Number one, don't stay too long. Sometimes visitors come and they stay a long time and they might not realize it's actually burdensome on the person. They need to rest. They're tired. They're in pain. 
or sometimes don't stay at all. You may travel a great distance and spend a lot of time and, 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 and spend a lot of time driving around looking for a parking space to finally, to finally get there. And then it turns out that at the moment that you arrive, let's say a doctor is with the patient, let's say they're indisposed for some other reason, let's say they're just not up to company at that moment. So don't go. It's not a mitzvah simply to burst in and make sure that your presence is known. You're doing it for the patient. It's not for yourself. I have a practice. I, I came up with this idea many years ago. I've been doing it for a long time. To me, it makes sense. I go to visit people in the hospital if, God forbid, they're sick. Very often it happens. I may travel a great distance. It may take a long time. I get there and the patient's not there. They went for a test. They're in some other place. They're whatever it is. They're not there. That's what I use business cards for. <laughs> so I always leave a business card because I want the patient to know when they do finally come back that I was there. They should know that I went to the effort to be there, not because they owe me anything, not because I'm looking for a thank you, but they should know that someone was looking for them. Someone cared to come. Always remember that the visit is not about you. It's about the patient. Rule number one, when you go in to see a patient, sit down. Don't stand. It's a very important rule. It makes a big difference to the patient. Whether you're standing or whether you're sitting, sit down. It makes a big difference. Number two, and you would think the fact that I even have to say this is crazy, but I do. When you go to visit someone in the hospital, don't criticize their doctor. Don't say that your doctor is better. Don't say that you have a cure for what is bothering them. That is not helpful. It, that just is not helpful. Again, it's about them. It's not about you. And also, don't spend your time telling the patient all of your problems. Oh, you think you're in bad shape. I was really sick. What you have is nothing. Let me tell you all about my ailments and my sicknesses. That is not what we should do when we visit someone who's in the hospital. Just be there. Just be present. Even if you're sitting silently and you are either literally or figuratively holding their hand, be present. Never underestimate the impact you will have through your presence because it's profound. People who are near the end of their life can reach situations that are very, very complicated in terms of Jewish law. Things like DNR, do not resuscitate, whether a person is required to undergo a certain treatment. These are very, very complicated questions. They're very difficult questions. And they require someone who has expertise in this specific area of Jewish law, which includes having uh, competency in the medical aspects of what's happening. You have to ask a question. 
You have to find an expert to be that you trust, and you have to ask that person. These are difficult questions. Sometimes life and death may hang in the balance, and it requires competent halakhic advice, just like it requires competent medical advice. If you go to visit someone in the hospital, or someone who is sick, or you know that someone is sick, and you know that this person has a rabbi, tell the rabbi. It's so amazing to me how many people think that I, Michael Whitman, I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. I should know about this. I should know about that. I should know everything in the world. They think that obviously somehow God's giving me these messages. I know everything that happens to everybody in the world. I'm sorry to say I do not. And neither do other rabbis. Rabbis very much appreciate it when someone tells them, you know, someone is in the hospital. Maybe you didn't know. And even if I did know, but out of four or five times, there will be someone that I did not know. Of course, unless there is some specific reason not to tell. If the person, the patient does not want to, to tell, obviously you have to be sensitive. But in general, a rabbi will always appreciate it when he is informed that someone he knows is in the hospital. There's a very deep and meaningful Jewish practice, very emotional, very heavy, that a person near the end of their life should have the opportunity to say vidui, to say the confessional. person is about to end their life in this world. They're about to return their soul to its maker, to God. Their soul will come before God to be evaluated for its actions in this world. It's an unbelievable merit to be able to do tshuva, to be able to repent, to be able to have introspection to feel bad about mistakes that a person's made, to feel good about the good things that a person has done. And we do this through the process that we do on Yom Kippur of, of Vidui, of saying the confessional. There are prayers that are printed in every prayer book. Slight differences, but it doesn't matter which ones you say. The meaning, the essence, the thrust is all the same. There's also a tremendous idea, which we have going back to the time of the Talmud, to be able to say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, to assert that God is one, the most basic fundamental truth of Judaism at the very end of a person's life. And if a person is in this stage, it's the right thing, if it is possible, for the patient to be able to say this. Of course, it's a very sensitive subject. How do you address it? How do you say to a person, okay, let's say vidui. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? What do, what do you mean I should say vidui? Do you know something I don't know? It has to be introduced in the right way. It's got to be done in a way that doesn't demoralize a person, but rather lifts their spirits, brings them closer to God. It's a sensitive task. If we are with someone in the last moments of their life, we should not leave in those moments. Those are holy moments. The moments when a soul is leaving a body, those are holy moments. And a person should never be alone at that moment. And if it means that we stay, 
we stay. From the moment that an immediate family member passes away, God forbid, from the moment of death, for those people who will be sitting Shiva, we're going to talk about that later. So from the moment of death until the end of the funeral, when Shiva begins, so this period, which could be a matter of hours, it could be a day, two, three, and four even, that period of time between death and the end of the funeral, a person is called an onain. An onain is a special category of a mourner. Again, it applies only to those relatives who will be sitting Shiva, immediate family members. And the basic rule is that during this entire period of time, a person is exempted from and therefore is not supposed to perform any positive mitzvos. So that means, for example, during this entire period of time, when a person eats, they do not make a bracha before eating or after eating. We don't pray. Men do not put on tefillin. We don't fulfill any positive mitzvah. Why? Why is that? There are two reasons. Listen carefully to the two reasons. One reason is because they're involved in another mitzvah. They're involved in the mitzvah of preparing for the burial, preparing for the funeral, preparing the details of the cemetery, preparing to sit shiva. It's overwhelming. It's chaotic. It's hectic. It's, it's frenzied. And so Jewish law removes the obligation to fulfill positive commandments like prayer and blessings, etc., in order to free a person to be able to direct their energy to getting ready for the funeral. That is the overriding mitzvah, and that takes precedence. And therefore, to devote that time single-mindedly to preparing for the funeral is considered a sign of respect for the one who passed away. This is important. I've got to devote all my energy to it. I can't just be doing 10 different things. And therefore... We are not allowed to divert our attention. We are required to be involved in these tasks, these manifold tasks of getting ready for the funeral, for sitting Shiva. Okay, that's one reason. The Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud gives a second answer. It's incredible. The Talmud says, of course, the negative commandments I'm not allowed to violate. I'm not allowed to eat non-kosher food. I'm not allowed to violate Shabbos. But the positive commandments, doing specific actions, prayer, blessings, putting on tefillin, that I do not do. Why not? Says the Talmud. Because a person who has suffered a loss, of course, every case is different. May not apply all the time, but sometimes it does. A person who has suffered this loss, God forbid, they may be angry. They may be angry with God. And if they would be required to do positive commandments to pray, maybe a person doesn't feel like praying. Maybe a person is angry with God and does not want to praise God or to say thank you, God, at that moment. And therefore, Jewish law exempts a person from having to actively do an action to serve God at this time because maybe they're not able to do it with a sense of love 
and gratitude due to what they're experiencing. What an amazing level of sensitivity our rabbis understood about being attuned to the mood of someone in an extreme emotional state. And we will see that level of sensitivity repeated over and over again throughout our discussion on this subject. During this period of time, while a person is an onane from the time of death until the end of the funeral, we do not engage in activities of joy, like uh, parties or festive occasions. We don't spend a lot of time with our own personal grooming. Men do not shave, get a haircut during this time, because we're focused on the needs of the person that passed away. We withhold from ourselves eating meat, drinking wine, because these are things that very often lead to joy and satisfaction, and we withhold that. And we don't do work except for closing down. We should use this time to close down, to finish up our things, to uh, delegate the tasks that we have to others, to close out certain projects that we're not going to look at during the Shiva, to prepare for our experience of sitting Shiva. And this also is a tremendous respect and honor to the one who passed away, because the state the statement that we're making is, we're going to set our lives on hold now because your passing affects me so deeply. It's not life is normal. It's not go to the office and do the normal tasks unless there's some extraordinary circumstance. Everything is put on hold in order to pay tribute and honor to the person that passed away. Now, all of these laws of an onane do not apply on Shabbos or on Yom Tov. They're all suspended during Shabbos and Yom Tov. Everything is normal. Everything is regular. We are not allowed on Shabbos to make arrangements for the funeral that violate Jewish law. Of course, we can discuss, we can talk, we can talk to people in our immediate vicinity, but whatever would be an action that would be a violation of Jewish law, whether it is a biblical law or even if it is a rabbinic law, the laws of Shabbos are not set aside in order to prepare for a funeral. Even if that means that the funeral will be delayed as a result. If on Saturday I could make phone calls and make arrangements and drive here and there, I would be able to have the funeral on Sunday. But now that I can't do anything and I'm not going to be able to make phone calls or to drive somewhere until late Saturday night, 10 o'clock at night, no way to get the funeral arranged for Sunday. It's going to be Monday. And we know the funeral should be as soon as possible. That's not a consideration. We'll talk about the timing of the funeral shortly, but violating the laws of Shabbos or the laws of Yom Tov, even in a rabbinic manner, takes 
Not doing that takes precedence over being quicker to arrange the funeral. I remember when my father passed away. It's now over 11 years. And I remember the experience that I had of being an Onain. I would uh, eat food without making a bracha. Not davening. I didn't put on tefillin. Actually, I actually found out that my father passed away. I was in the middle of davening. And I had to take off my tefillin. I had to stop davening. It's very disorienting. It was very strange. It feels irregular. It feels unusual. And that's exactly how it is supposed to feel. That's exactly what it is intended to convey. That something is not the same. There's an increasingly common area of Jewish law that is extremely complicated. And that is if a mourner is in, if mourners are in more than one place in different time zones, and especially if the person who passed away is going to be buried in a different location. For example, a person passes away in Montreal and they're going to be buried in Israel. When does Shiva start? Does it start when the burial happens in Israel or does it start when the body leaves Montreal? Well, let's ask, who's asking the question? Is it someone in Montreal? Is it someone in Israel? Is it someone who is traveling with the body? Is it someone who's going to stay in Israel for the Shiva or are they going to return back? This subject of Jewish law is extremely complicated and detailed. And it is very hard to pinpoint exact answers because there are many, many factors. So I'll just say a question needs to be asked of a competent halakhic authority. And um, two cases can appear to be very, very similar, but a, an extremely subtle or slight difference between the two could lead to a different answer that is given in the two cases. And as I say, with travel today and people living in different places, this, is becomes, this becomes more and more common. And it's a very difficult question to answer. The Torah says, Ki kavar tik varenu bayomahu. Person passes away, preferably, they should be buried that day. We consider it an honor to the deceased that they be buried as soon as possible. And we consider it a dishonor to the deceased if the burial is delayed. The only reason to allow for delaying burial is because of kavod hames, because of honor to the deceased. If the reason is something that pays honor to the deceased, that's permissible. Any other reason, it's not. If a person wants to be buried in Israel, that's considered honor to the deceased because it is a mitzvah, according to many authorities. It's a mitzvah to be buried in Israel. 
So it's an honor to the deceased, even though that means the burial can be delayed by one, maybe even two days, simply because of the time necessary to arrange it and the time to travel. But that is a permissible delay of burial because it's being done to enhance the honor to the deceased. Or to allow time for immediate family members to arrive because they are trying to arrive and if the funeral will be held before they arrive, it would lower the honor to the deceased. That's permissible to, 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 to delay for that purpose. But what is not permissible is to schedule the funeral at a time when it's more convenient for people. As I said before, Kavadame's honor to the deceased means someone, God forbid, passes away for their family members. Life stops. Life is on hold. Everything is interrupted. If the delay in burial is because someone wants to be able to wait and attend a meeting and because of that they won't be able to get a flight until the next day. Or someone wants to be able to take a day or so to make it more convenient or maybe it's more convenient to have a funeral on a Sunday rather than on a Friday or some other such reason that is the opposite of kavod hames, of honor to the deceased. That is making the statement that the needs of the deceased are secondary, God forbid. And those types of reasons are not acceptable reasons for delaying burial. Whoever is a relative that it's important that they be present for the burial should be making every effort to come as soon as possible. Our mystical scholars experts in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, they describe the pain and anguish that the soul experiences between the time of death and the time of burial. And that's why it's extremely important not to delay the funeral beyond what is allowed according to Jewish law. If you attend a funeral, please sign the guest book. I will confess that for the first, uh, whatever it is, 50 years of my life, I don't think I ever signed a guest book at a funeral. Who needs to sign? Who's going to look at it? Who needs it? And then when my father passed away and during the Shiva, we were looking at the guest book. And it was very important to us because, of course, in the blur of what happened that day, we didn't notice everyone. We certainly didn't speak to everyone who was there. And to know that certain people had come, it meant a tremendous amount to us. So since that time, I've always made it a point to sign the guest book. Please sign the guest book. When a person passes away, there's a universal Jewish practice that their body is prepared for burial in a very specific way. There is a physical preparation of cleansing the body and there is a spiritual preparation of 
purifying the body, just like immersing in a mikvah for purification. As well, there are special garments that a person is clothed in, known as tachrichim. We use the English word shrouds. In fact, the garments are modeled on the garments worn by the Kohanim, the priests, when they officiated in the Beis Hamikdash in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And we make that connection in order to make this spiritual connection that a person is now going to serve God. Their soul is coming before God and their body is clothed in the garments of service and worship. Concerning these garments and how they are made and how they are fashioned and how they're uh, arranged, there are many different customs in different places. Each place should follow its customs. In some places in the world, when a person is buried, there is no casket. This is common in many places in Israel. It was also common in certain places in Europe in former times. And in other places, like in most places in North America, there is a casket into which the body is placed and then that is put into the earth. There is a long-standing practice from the time of the Talmud that concerning choosing a casket, concerning choosing the shrouds, concerning all of the elements of a funeral and a burial, there should be no differences between Jews that are wealthier and Jews that are less wealthy. And it is the correct time since the time of the Talmud for every person to choose the most simple, the most humble, the most plain objects and style for all of the items relevant to burial. In most places, it's the practice that just before the funeral begins, there is a practice to make a bracha, to say a blessing. Of course, this is one of the only blessings that a, a person who is an onain does say. Because remember, the other blessings, like before eating, until after the funeral, a person does not make those blessings or say any prayers. This is an exception because it is a blessing for this specific moment. And the blessing is the blessing that recognizes that God is Dayon HaMS, a true judge. And that means that perhaps what has happened is very painful, tragic, catastrophic. We recognize that there is a God who has a wider understanding than we do, who has a wider perspective than we do. And we do not understand God's ways. God does not give us that insight. We also have a practice of Kriya. Kriya means to tear a garment that we are wearing. The idea of Kriya is for a mourner to be able to express with his or her own hands the physical act of ripping as a way to unbottle, to let out the inner turmoil what they are experiencing at that moment. But you'll notice something very significant, and this will be a motif that will be repeated over and over. 
And that is that Jewish practices of mourning ask a mourner to confront directly what has happened, not to hide, not to pretend, but to confront it directly, but within a structure, with support. The idea of a person simply tearing garments at will in a fit of grief is not what we have in mind. We have this physical expression, but it is structured within the context of saying a blessing, within the context of a rabbi or someone else who is present, who guides the mourner in where to make the cut and how to make the cut. There are details about it. So again, it's an emotional expression, but surrounded with structure and support. According to Jewish law, it is a garment that should be torn. A shirt, a jacket, a garment that provides warmth and covering. Technically speaking, a ribbon certainly is not a fulfillment of such a thing. It's not as common here in Montreal, thank God, but it is unfortunately common in other parts of Canada and in the United States where there'll be a small black ribbon and a cut will be made in that ribbon and a person wears it like a pin. That is a very unfortunate practice because it is something that is modeled on non-Jewish practices. It is not a genuine, authentic Jewish practice and it should be discouraged. There are other places where it's very common for the mourner to be given a tie or a scarf to tear. This also is not the correct practice. I know that it's widespread, but it's not the correct practice. Those garments, a tie and a scarf, do not have the halachic status of a garment. They don't provide warmth. They don't cover part of a person's body. And therefore, it really should be a garment that's worn, like a shirt, a sweater, a blouse, a jacket. There are slight details and differences between whether a person, God forbid, is mourning the passing of a parent versus another relative. And that's why the person who is going to tear Kriya should be guided by someone, a rabbi or someone else who knows these details and can make sure that they're done correctly. A very important part of the funeral is a hesped, a eulogy. I think there's a lot of confusion about what a eulogy is supposed to be. So allow me to spend just a few minutes to discuss this from the point of view of Jewish law and Jewish values. To eulogize a person properly is a very important mitzvah. And to be negligent in it is a very serious sin. There are many statements of our rabbis that sound outrageous, but they are statements of criticism of not eulogizing someone properly. The purpose of a eulogy, of a hesped, is to arouse the emotions due to the loss of this person. There are certain days minor holidays, when 
we withhold from a traditional eulogy and rather limit ourselves to words of tribute in order to recognize the sanctity of that day. There are a lot of details concerning this and a person should be guided by their rabbi. In general, in a eulogy, and if this strikes a chord, perhaps it does, in a eulogy, we are not allowed to lie. We're not allowed to say something that is false. But we are allowed to put things in a more positive light. If a person was generous, you can say they were very generous. But if a person is miserly, we're not allowed to say that he was generous. Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, who during his lifetime is a person who eulogized a number of people in a way that was deeply magnificent in the way that he painted the picture of that person's life. He once quoted a source of our rabbis who says that when a person passes away, and their soul comes before God to be judged, to be evaluated on the basis of how they lived their life. Well, the heavenly court requires evidence. Where does the heavenly court receive evidence? Says our rabbis from the eulogies. The angels, the heavenly court listens to the eulogies. And that becomes the testimony about this person. And if a person says something about one who has passed away which is false, then in fact they have given false testimony, a very serious sin. This also should not need to be said, but it does need to be said. When a person is giving you a eulogy, do not embarrass the person who passed away. Do not embarrass anyone else. How many times have we been to a funeral and someone has spoken and said something that is just inappropriate, unkind, mean-spirited? A eulogy is not the place for it. The eulogy is a place to tell the praise of a person and the lessons to learn from their life. A eulogy should teach. A eulogy that is well done and well delivered should allow us to leave inspired with our emotions aroused, with a feeling that we have learned something, that we can appreciate someone in a way we did not appreciate them before. That's what a eulogy is supposed to achieve. I'm going to go behind the scenes for a moment and share a secret that is usually kept behind the curtain. Many rabbis today bemoan relatives giving eulogies at funerals. In former years, you can remember 20, 30, 40 years ago, it would be unheard of for anyone other than the rabbi to, to, to give a eulogy at a funeral. And now it's the children, it's the grandchildren, it's the relatives, it's the friends. So many rabbis, not me, not me, but many rabbis bemoan that. 
and they point to legitimately the fact that the results are often very trite, very often at funerals. You have a number of people speaking. They repeat one to the other. It overlaps. The points that they make, the chicken soup and the brisket and the cookies and okay, all right. But was there anything more significant in a person's life than, than okay, maybe that is the, what's significant, okay. But it appears that there is uh, something lost when everyone is sharing their favorite memory. At the same time, let me be very, very open and say to you that at the same time, the eulogies given by rabbis can also suffer very greatly from untruth, saying things that are just not accurate, speaking from a template, using cliches, praising aspects of a person that really did not deserve to be praised. Of course, each trend feeds the other. I understand why relatives and family members want to give the eulogy because they may remember a rabbi speaking and the rabbi did not know the person that passed away and what the rabbi said was insensitive and what the rabbi said was far from the truth and far from meaningful. Okay. Rabbis have to recognize their responsibility in coming to this problem. But I believe we have to try to avoid both problems. We have to try to make sure that we are inspiring, that we are arousing emotion, and that we are teaching. And whether it's a rabbi or a family member, to think about not just what was the best food that I had or the best treat that I got, but what did I learn from that person? How will I live my life differently as a result of having had that person in my life. That is the tribute to a person. That is kavod hames. That's honoring the deceased. And we have to remember at every step, in every detail, that is the goal. To show honor and respect to the one who passed away. Because that is what is going to lead us to have this experience as life-affirming. What can I learn from this experience so that I will live my life better? That's the goal we're looking for. In every detail, how can it make life more significant, more well-lived, more appreciated? That is the goal we are seeking. My friends, that'll do it for tonight. I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a beautiful Shabbos. I look forward to seeing you soon in person.